Hello and welcome to this month's podcast. I was lucky enough to have a chat to Matt Hulse, a filmmaker who has been one of our 12 artists at home, part of Jelly's residency programme during lockdown. Also, I was over the moon to receive some special jingles that he's made for the show and they are very fitting. If anybody else out there fancies making a jingle for uh, our next podcast, that would be brilliant. I'm stealing this from Matt's website because he says it better than I ever could. He describes himself as an artist, filmmaker, photographer, performer and writer. There's loads of information about him on his website, which you'll be able to find in the information section when you download the podcast. But without further ado, I'll just let him do the talking. Sound and vision. Okay, so I've set this. Right, you talk. Do some talking. Um, Dale Rowney, heavyweight, heavy cartridge paper, extra stark of Seikens papier, papier design, gramage for. See, that's perfect. And actually, we could just carry on with that. I mean, why not? Yeah, but it's art, isn't it? I know, exactly. Well, who... happens, so locals are in between us. Where is it made? Bradfield. Bracknell, yeah, Dale oh, Brackle. Brackle. Who, who knew? Oh, I did not. It's a nice looking paper you've got there. Sound and I have to be honest, I've had very little sleep last night because my daughter's hamster escaped. Oh, no. Uh, and uh, so if I sound... Well, basically, if I do that, if I do long pauses, no, no, sorry, that's about, <laughs> uh, that's also where I'm at. I didn't didn't have a lost hamster. I just drank rather too much beer, so um, ah. yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit little bit slow. Um, well, yeah, we, my brother's hamster escaped when when we were kids, and it was a surprise Christmas present for him, and it escaped on Christmas Eve, and it chewed through the speaker cables of my dad's new hi-fi and was electrocuted. Actually <laughs> so electrocuted. Was, so my poor brother, sort of Christmas day, looking forward for months to getting a hamster, <laughs> was this kind of frazzled. On Christmas day? Yeah. <laughs> That's brutal. <laughs> it was pretty brutal, yeah. Well, Bernard didn't, he didn't actually get out of the, of her room, thankfully. He just, she just woke up to find him asleep on her leg, which freaked her out massively. But I thought it was quite sweet. Yeah. And I'm really pleased it didn't make it downstairs to meet the dog. Yeah. That could have been bad. Kind of dog that would eat a hamster? Uh, I don't think our dog would eat a hamster. I think our dog would bark at the hamster possibly and not really understand what to do and be a bit dopey about it. Pretty sure that's what would happen with the, with the dog and the hamster. Yeah. And the hamster might potentially bite the dog because they're quite vicious. It, yeah, they they, they are. Much above their weight, don't they? They do. They've got massive mouths and huge teeth. Huge teeth. You don't want to be bitten by a hamster. They're horrible. I generally start by asking people what their connection to Reading is. Is that an all right place to start? That, that is an all right place to start. Have you got a cup of tea as well? That's important. I do, yeah. Good. What did I ask you? A Reading, yes. Yes, Shall Reading. Yeah, um, go on. Well, my my 
connections with Reading actually they they run quite deep because um, after a period of years following my uh, parents' separation, we moved around quite a lot. So there was this sort of unsettled period. We lived with my grandparents for a while. Um, but eventually we went to live at rather short notice with my dad and his new girlfriend at the time, Trisha, who has since been my stepmother for, for you know, all of the time. We moved in with them in their, in their rather small flat on Howard Street, overlooking the IDR and the Hexkin. And yeah, so the, the th- th- three of us kids and then and them, and it was a kind of unexpected arrival from the point of view of my stepmother who suddenly inherited, <laughs> inherited if you like, basically suddenly had to adopt or chose to adopt three kids belonging to her boyfriend, <laughs> um, which must have been a bit of a shock at the time. And yeah, the little we were all in the one bedroom, and my little Z bed was was folded out underneath the window, so my view was of the IDR and the Reading and the Civic Centre and so on. Um, this is in sort of nineteen seventy eight, I reckon. Was the IDR there then? Yeah, yeah. What well, was interesting, my dad was uh, part of the the original team that set up the Hexagon. So he was uh, working at the Hexagon, and he very proudly, to this day, um, remembers that he was in charge of the seat numbering. <laughs> <laughs> and I think involved a little bit in the choice of fabrics and stuff like that, so the fact that it, it's red or was red. Still red, um, still red. Yeah, is, is down, down to him. Yeah, so that was specific. You know, so this is going on kind of nine, nine, ten, so I went uh, just... Went off to Coley School. Okay. And so some of my earliest, not earliest memories, but the kind of key memories at a very impressionable age are, are Reading. And, yeah, you know, I have a real fondness for that, that bit of road and that ramp that goes down towards Coley School, which seemed, obviously, when I was nine, like this immense ramp, and it's actually just a short stretch, isn't it? But, and, yeah, I did spend my evenings in the summer cycling around um, up and down the up and down the uh, canal and yeah I, I had I didn't know that Reading was sort of supposed to be ugly or a bit second rate or any of those things for me it was just all um, stuff that I, I really liked and got to know and then yeah it's got a bit older went to Alfred Sutton Boys School which was also incredibly uh, formative for me because it was a really uh, racially mixed school and had this strange curriculum where you had three three um, blocks of lessons a day and it was one of the schools in Reading that I think the, the days finished at three o'clock or something so we, we had all you know all suddenly all the boys are like dossing around in town afterwards at the loose end so I, I, did, I wasn't a particularly naughty lad but you know there were some scrapes involved yeah, so lo- loads of really um, key things that were, were impressed upon me by Reading at, at that age. Um, and then we moved um, to Bath, which kind of couldn't be more different. What age was that? Sort of 12, 13, something. And the 
biggest shock I remember was going to this new school in Bath and it being like 98% white kids. And just, even though I wasn't, wouldn't have been able to articulate it at the time, I just really felt that, that difference. Um, and effectively that, <laughs> that sort of, in a way, separated me from having black or Asian friends um, pretty much for the rest of my life, just that, that one sort of division. That's part of my memory of Reading is, is the, that, that mix of, of people and how much I liked that and was excited by it. I think that's the, it's really interesting what you say about not knowing that Reading has a reputation for being a bit of a the dullard of the home counties. Um, but, <laughs> but I think... I think what people don't realise is that it's genuinely one of the most multicultural places I've ever lived yeah. in my life, and and it's it's just it, that's that's your normality, that's it, and it's brilliant. Often, even now, we still talk about being in the kind of Reading bubble. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an amazing um, place for that. In fact, I was just the other. Day, uh, I remember this guy, Alfred Sutton, called Ricky Nelson, who's a, a pal. We used to sort of basically to sort of skive out of team sports. We'd say, No, we're going to do running. And we'd basically run around and run and run around the 400 meter track, trying to clock up, you know, 10k in 40 minutes. <laughs> and we, you know, we really, really bonded over that. I remember. And in fact, I was sort of half trying to find him on, on Facebook the other day. And God, wouldn't it be amazing just to sort of Say hi, Ricky. Do you remember me from 1978? <laughs> um, Did you find I him? Think I, I think I found him. Yeah, um, there's a guy there, Ricky Nelson, lives in Reading. Um, oh, this could be our opportunity. We could broadcast this and find Ricky for you. Well, that that would would be really interesting. I mean, I only have fond memories of him. He may not remember me at all, but yeah, we did this sort of ridiculous. I can't remember what distance we were attempting but we basically so it would have been two 40 minute lesson blocks we basically ran for the whole thing um i was sick afterwards <laughs> it was like come on we gotta keep going you know sort of a little bonding thing yeah and anyway just um to add to <laughs> some detail to that story so i had a very good friend um called david silby and we thought of ourselves as punks and one thing we used to do is dye our hair green with um, powder paint. And then... So that lasted a really long time in your hair then. We would go to the, the butt centre, as it was there on a the yeah. Saturday, and um, hang out like you do. But for some reason, we thought it was a really cool idea to pretend that we had gammy legs. So we'd sort of trail around the butt centre with our legs kind of dangling. <laughs> green hair. I just think that's quite a striking <laughs> image. Ga- the gammy legged punks. The gammy legged punks. And this is not a band that you've ever thought to start? <laughs> well, I was too busy with the hippies. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's loads, of, loads, of, loads of memories already, but it's even more complicated because when I got to university time, I um, wanted to do art and for some reason my Dad, my stepmom were against me going to an art college, but they couldn't stop me doing art. So they said, OK, we'll strike a deal. You can do art if you do it at a university. <laughs> Good deal. So you chose Reading? Well, I, I 
Or did Reading choose you? Reading chose me, yeah. I applied to five unis. I think I think I didn't even consider the slate um, or anything of that alleged calibre at that time. Yeah, so I think I chose in order something like Leeds, Newcastle, Edinburgh, Reading, Lancaster and somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, so Reading was my fourth choice. They were the only people to give me an offer. So I went for the interview and they said, why did you put us fourth? And I said, because I lived here as a child. <laughs> I didn't particularly want, you know, I thought at that time I didn't particularly want to go back to Reading, but actually it was a brilliant choice in the end. And had Reading changed immeasurably at that point? I'm trying to think. Um, so that was 87. I don't so, know. You know, it hadn't changed that much in, from what I could see. And I, um, but yeah, it was quite it was slightly strange going back to it and kind of, because mm. you know, it wasn't that long before that I'd been living there. So, But you came back as a student. Came back as a student, yeah, and... Well, the funny thing, the, the thing that my folks feared about art college was this idea that it would be kind of completely unstructured and full of, you know, drugs and drinks and things. And um, <clears throat> sure enough, at that time, Reading was probably the most liberal, unstructured course in the whole of the country. <laughs> but they inadvertently you know, sent me for the, their worst nightmare. Um, <laughs> Did you tell them that at the time, though? Hey, Mum, Dad, it really is like art college. Yeah, I, I don't think I did. I think I was probably always sort of made out that it was a bit more academic than it was. And actually, initially, I went, I, I got in on the on the art with our history degree, and then I, I swiftly ditched the art history, realizing that it was more fun lying around in empty studios. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was um, that. So obviously, then then I got to know Reading in a different different dimension and we did um had a reading performance group was going there and we did some stuff in performances in town and at the after dark club and something also at the the butt center again which would probably already become the broad street mile Um, i i can't i can't remember it becoming the mall i think i was i think i might have been away at university when that happened and then i came back and everything had changed it was it was it was, you know, also very, very formative period, and that the, the sort of ethos of that course has, you know, basically determined the course of my life. And so yeah, Reading's very important to me. Tell us a little bit about how that's worked. Then, what kind of, what, how would you describe yourself as an artist now? Yeah, good question. Sound. I was a student at Reading. I was experimenting across various different mediums and, and practices at the same time. So I was had kind of come to the basically got onto the course with a portfolio of photography, some notebooks with ideas for conceptual works and performances, a little bit, very little bit of painting, um, some attempts at printmaking. My drawing skills were not sort of academic, they were more cartooning and design-based. 
and yeah, I, I carried on for the, you know the best part of the first year and a half, two years, all of those elements together, running simultaneously, uh, but not really knowing how to you know whether I should focus on one, the idea of you know becoming an expert in one particular thing, or or whether the diversity of practice was what what I wanted to keep going. And then the guy in the year above me at certain points said, why don't you try um, filmmaking? Because that's a way that you could bring together performance, photography, sound and music, animation, drawing. Um, and I thought, yeah, okay, I'll give that, give that out a go. And uh, you have to bear in mind, this is sort of pre-video cameras in a way. <laughs> um, so Super 8 was the, the option I had. And this is a really key thing, actually, that, that has determined my, my work since, was that with Super 8, you, you're shooting the image and then you're gathering the sounds separately and then it's about bringing those things together as two separate sources of media. And so, you know, ever since I've been aware of the fact that the image in a film, it's an illusion of an image, a moving image and a, and a sound can come in and out of sync and that they're separable you can pull these things apart and and you know some people get into to filmmaking because they they like what they want to tell they have a specific story to tell or they they're into script writing um, or they've got a particular message they want to to put across but for me it's always been about the the materials working with the materials and bringing them together and seeing how the the sound and the image rub up against each other, what the impacts are. Um, so for me, a film could be completely without image and just sound, or complete, you know, just, just image, no sound. I mean, I, those are the sort of extremes. And I like to play around with what's in between those, those things. I had a Super 8 camera. It was my dad's. I loved it, and it got nicked at university. I was <sighs> gutted, absolutely gutted. But the thing I remember about Super 8 that over anything else was how real it seems, like how there isn't a distance between you viewing it and being on film because it just because there seems to be that tactile element to it in some way. I don't know how to describe it, whether or not it was always because it was on the projection screen that we had pulled up and it was obviously poorly taken because my dad had done it. But it was also really accessible. Mm. It's got a, it's, it has a feeling, doesn't it? And this mm. is the thing that um, for many years, the video just couldn't get close to. And it wasn't really until, I suppose, DSLRs really took off and then it, but then it came back to the, the, you know, a physical camera with changeable glass lenses. And, and then it, then it digital started to have some of the feel of, of celluloid, although they're completely different elements, you know, different mediums still. But um, yeah, I mean, I really, I would say, I really f- fell properly in love with Super 8. Um, once I found that as a medium, I, I knew that it was clear what I wanted to do then. Um, and it's partly just like the little strip. With the tiny images and it's, it's so kind of beautiful and tactile and, and the real 
and real, the, the and also real. really cute. Yeah. Um, and there's this magic, you have this tiny thing, and you project it, and it's, you know, it, it fills a room. It seems it's completely magical. And yeah, I loved all the. Actually, actually I should go go back a bit, actually, into my, the, you know, the sort of journey to being coming an artist, because when I was first time in Reading, I was obsessed about uh, cassettes and and the music as well, but the actual physical cassettes. And my dad bought me a cassette repair kit, which I used to dismantle cassettes. And without realising what I was doing, I was basically editing. Um, and I tried to make, I don't know how I heard about them, but I somehow heard about the idea of tape loops. And so I was trying to make my own tape loops. Uh, and this is really young, it's like 11 or something. Um, and I didn't think I'm being creative, I'm an artist, I'm connected with the John Cage or anything. I just kind of was partly playing, partly destroying, partly just really curious and probably a bit bored as well. Like most 11-year-olds. <clears throat> yeah, and um, <laughs> that, that same um, behaviour is, is you need that in order to edit Super 8, basically. It's the same stuff. It's a strip of information. that You've got a razor blade, you've got some sellotape, and you're kind of... You, the, the world disappears and you're focused on this tiny area of practice, and um, that's that's kind of left my my actual practice these days rather sadly maybe um yeah but the, the core of how did you become an artist it's probably from mucking around with cassettes yeah and then and then realizing that the film was basically just a strip of information like a cassette tape is and that you can cut them <laughs> <laughs> and splice them back together Exactly, and then then you start to have interesting juxtapositions and so on, and then it becomes even much more complex. But essentially, that's the sort of um, the trajectory, and it's and it's likewise roll-ups, cigarette roll-ups, similar thing. It's strips and tapes and paraphernalia, and you know, the, yeah. the, and the little rolling machines. They're, they're, they, those things for me are all connected, and it's about kind of manipulation and hands-on, and the film that. We just had a premiere of um, explores that in, in some depth. The, the film that you just released is that the sort of biggest film project that you've worked on? Well, it had the it had the the most the biggest budget, and yes, I suppose the most people involved. What's um, it? What's it called? Just give us it. Called um, Sound for the Future, and Sound the, the title actually comes from a cassette. EP that my brother, sister and I recorded exactly that, that time I'm describing in Reading, first time round, um, that was called A Sound for the Future. So the film has come f- directly from the notion of that cassette, um, which is what I'm describing in terms of my trajectory and, and practice. So the film attempts to sort of lay out that, that story actually as I've just been describing it without being literal <laughs> saying when I was 11 I had a tape you know so you don't show... you don't narrate over the top of it like that then there's I, I was slightly against my will I was persuaded to do a, a, a direct and narration at the start of the film which yeah I mean it, it, it works but because of because I'm such a contrarian, I used that as a way to 
discuss whether or not one should narrate a film, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, but there isn't that narration in that cl- classical sense, no. Is it filmed around Reading, then? No, and that, that's a funny thing. I mean, my original conception of it, part of it would be, yes, Super 8 of the IDR and Civic Centre and so on, but in the end, I did some test filming in Glasgow and then and around an area called Anderston, which reminded me of the, you know, the IDR and the road bridges and things. And that, in the end, that becomes the sort of stand-in to represent Reading, even though it's filmed in, in Glasgow, but, you know, it's a similar sort of architecture and concrete and period, mm. I guess. No, I mean, we didn't film anything in Reading, but the, honestly, the, I think you would probably pick up how infused the film is with, with Reading. Yeah, well, I look forward to seeing it. It's out already, isn't it? Well, it's, it had a premiere um, at the London Film Festival as part of the Experimenter Strand, so they had it as their, their gala film, which is great. So the Experimenter Strand only had, um, had been allotted one feature slot and they chose our film, which is amazing. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, and, yeah, it ran for, it was streamed for three days and then, and then it's now disappeared, so you can't. Uh, it's not available at the moment in that sense. There's a trailer out there, obviously, and then there's a trailer and there's also this three animations from the film that we pulled out separately that are on YouTube. And one of those, in fact, is the the one with the Super 8 of the Anderson in Glasgow that stands in for Reading. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that, yeah, it's a stand-in. It's a concrete road stand-in. It's good. Yeah. Wow. And just going back to the residency with Jelly, what was your expectation? You and Lisa Marie worked mm. very closely on your project. You really did seem to do it collaboratively. But can you tell yeah. me a little bit about how you worked as a pair? Yeah, well, I, I think that I didn't fully understand what I had applied to because, um, yeah, I, I noticed other people doing their own things and I, and I had understood that the whole purpose was that you you made a collaborative work so that's what I I didn't have like a parallel project going on yeah. <laughs> I just focused on working with Lisa I didn't re- I didn't have a specific expectation but I was really I'm a natural collaborator so I was really pleased to to have been put into a collaborative situation and yeah we just clicked really from from the first moment um loads of laughter that's one of the problems is uh, getting us to kind of stop laughing and be a bit serious, you know. But we you don't even need to be serious, though. N- no, but the, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of um, right. Okay, we need to actually put this into a form, <laughs> and that grew out of early on. She sent me just like a little package and said, "Here are some threads to follow." And inside that package was a le- an old letter that she'd found in a junk shop from sort of mid sixties, I guess. And the letter was titled Approaching Limassol. And then there's this two two sides of A5 and this this man, I assume, describing you know, his, his um, boat trip to Cyprus. <laughs> you know, just like writing home and saying this. And then I had dinner, I've got quite a nice cabin, blah, blah, blah. blah. And, and we and the, we both love the sort of phrasing that this, this writer uses. Um, so we kind of adopted that as a way to communicate with each other. Was it just the one letter, or was it just the one, one letter? And there was enough in there to sort of trigger mm. 
this amount and neither of us had been on a cruise we didn't know what Limassol was like but we just took it as a sort of shared imaginary space and Limassol is in Cyprus yeah and but you know in, in some ways even we, we tried not to even I don't think either of us looked looked it up on the internet or anything we didn't want to know too much about it it's just this sort of shared yeah shared imaginary space basically and then we wrote to each other from that space in postcards and where we're up to now I was up in Reading recently we, we recorded once we'd stopped laughing <laughs> us reading the postcards oh yes I saw um, you read one of the postcards yeah um, <laughs> so anyway in fact last night I just started cutting the, the readings and trying to work out you know to what extent are they you know which of the readings work is it the ones where we're laughing or is it the ones where we're not or is there some combination of both or do we just have the laughter um so yeah again I'm, it's me with material cutting and the the idea is that we then have produced an actual vinyl record probably a picture disc um lisa marie recently inherited an old gramophone and so the idea is that we'll have these readings and we'll play them on the gramophone and I don't know do a kind of Fitzcarraldo and push them out on a boat or something <laughs> <laughs> down the Thames yeah something some some performative element and that will then the, the documentation of that will then kind of be for most people that would be the work how they experience the work although there will be existing the, the actual vinyl or vinyls maybe there's a set of vinyls to, for each postcard and we're not quite sure and that's, that's approaching Limassol. But at the same time, she and I have been discussing producing a book. Because I, I wrote a song six, seven years ago called um, A Mighty Oak, which I revisited recently. And I realised that it broke, breaks down quite well into a sort of fairy tale form. And I had a feeling that I, I could imagine it as a book for the younger reader. And one of the, the touchstone books for me growing up was um, a copy of The Happy Prince by Oscar Wilde. In fact, oh, yeah. you can see on my arm... Oh, there is, he is. It's a swallow. Yeah. And that, that um, illustration is from the front cover of that copy of Happy Prince um, by a Czech artist called Otto Janacek. Oh, it's very lovely. And um, I took this copy to Lisa and I said, look, I've got this book from my childhood and I, I basically I want to make a book that's like this, you know, with this kind of cover, the, this sort of illustration. And I'd seen her drawing work and I thought, well, she should be doing the drawings here. And yeah, so we kind of, that, that's something else that's come from the, from the residency. That's brilliant that something, it's triggered something from your past to reignite because you've yeah, seen Yeah, and that, way... that book was, you know, I, that was what I was reading after Lights Out on Wayland Street. So yeah, it's another Reading connection. Excellent. Usually the way I end these is by asking people about their six dream dinner party guests. Oh, blimey. So okay. just just have a little think about that in the back of your mind. I'm going to get a pen for that one. Oh. Tiny post-its. Yeah, do that instead. If you hadn't have gone down the route of, you know, going to Reading and making films, was there anything else that really interested you? Like, I suppose, what, what, I mean, it's kind of like, what would you be doing if you weren't an artist? But, you know, those ridiculous government things. Have you seen those ridiculous government yes. things? Did you do it? Yes, I did do it. And what, um, what, what, what I, knew what would, I knew what would come up because it's come up before. <laughs> what was it? 
Um, it's in the area of like hair, barbering, and also sort of makeup and it, close personal. I mean, basically, it's like how what, how would you take them? someone who has this, you know, manip- skills of manipulation and <laughs> um, but isn't particularly scientific? How how would you apply that in a normal world? So I I haven't done hair it. And, <laughs> hair and makeup. I haven't done it, but a friend of mine has who's in events. She she organises these huge events, and they, they they told her to be a soldier. Wow! Which I was like, hmm, interesting. It's, it's, it's a funny thing, but I must. I mean, I did the you know careers test at like an early computer careers test at school, sort of O level time, so. And um, yeah, that that my number one job was was makeup artist. And I just thought, what? But. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, mm. I, I can see exactly why. And yes, I, I could have definitely gone down that line, but no one ever, because our family is basically quite academic, there was no one to say, actually, Matt, you're like, a, a, yes, yes, you've got some academic skills, but you also have this practical side, which is about detail and beauty. And, and that, you know, I, I take, take that out, if you like, on my films, but it could as well be someone's hair. <laughs> But I think that's quite interesting, though, isn't it? Because I remember, I don't think those those options were ever put out there for no. like back in the day. But whereas now, I've, I work with some sort of 16, 16 to 18 year olds, and some of them have gone off to do special effects, they've done makeup, they've done this whole other industry, mm. which is brilliant. And that was would never have been anything that I think probably librarian might have been on my skills list or lawyer for some reason yeah. don't know why yeah I don't think there would have ever a careers advisor would have ever said to me oh yeah actually what you need to do is you know go off and sew things or just wouldn't have happened no but well, there's, there's a kind of snobbery isn't there at, at, at school yeah it was my day and, and you know and that was perpetuated slightly by my folks, not not so much my mum, but in fact it was my my you know, my both mother that was suggested art school initially because I I must be moaning, I said, Oh, I've got to make choices about what to do and I just want to go somewhere where I can do whatever I want. <laughs> I said, Well there are there are such there places. are places <laughs> um, and sure enough that's that's what I did. But yeah, if I yeah it's, it's it's a shame in a way that because if if I'd had someone help me understand it, they would have said, "Why not be a hairdresser?" You know, so, I mean, it, but it was would have been thought of as really really lame, like a sort of fail choice, which is so stupid. Yeah, but that's was about hair in the end. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that weird though to think that something can be defined like that rather than just <laughs> something you want to do in your life? Because someone might express have an idea that they want to do a certain thing but actually there's something that's slightly off the side yeah that is what they ought to be doing yeah yeah just haven't considered it yeah so moving on to dinner party guests because I'm, I'm gonna have to i am gonna have to shoot off in a bit unfortunately i'm truncated this is this is the problem this is when you said why is everything in the morning is because <laughs> it's because i have to end my day at three and go and get children that's yeah, essentially no, that, that's, the problem i did understand yeah, I knew, I knew that was that was why when I was just like, oh, it was a, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and in a couple of years' time, it won't be like that for me because there'll be a bit more 
independent. And I'll get to do yeah. stuff in the afternoon. Um, well, you don't do with it. I actually had this woke up with this phrase in my mind today, which is I'm. So I was thinking about the lack of structure. I find it really hard to discipline myself most of the time, and or give myself discipline. And I was thinking, you know, because I've got this sort of list of things I want to creatively do, and so I just find it a real struggle to get around to them sometimes. I was thinking, hey, names what would give me, like, unavoidable structure? I thought it would be having a child, wouldn't it? <laughs> and then I came up with the phrase, it's like, I'm a, a father looking for, looking for a child, kind of thing. It was like, they usually have this, like, the child looking for their father, something like that. Yeah, this was slightly... You're a long-lost father looking for a child. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange thing, anyway... You should just make one. Just, just, just make a puppet of, of a child and, and walk that around. Well, when you see my film, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll send you a link to the okay. film. Um, Are you telling me that there's a puppet there child? A, there is a kind of puppet in there, yeah, puppet child. She's a Snoopy rag doll called Spoons. Okay. Does Spoons actually speak? Like... I, I use... I mean, he... This is explored in the film. I'll just send you. Okay, let me. I'll watch the link. And also, the other thing I really have to ask you about just before we do this. So, we were supposed to have this chat a couple of weeks ago, and I lost my voice, and I sent you an email saying that I sounded like Davros. Mm. And obviously, there's a generational acknowledgement there that we both know who mm. Davros is. But you told me that you'd made a snow Davros. I did make a snow Davros. Explain, please. One, one. This is probably sort of seventy-six or seventy-seven or something. Um, a heavy snowfall. We were living with our grandparents at the time in near Lewis, north side of the Downs. And yes, I made. Well, it was a weird thing because it was basically like Davros's chair, or where he had like a little mm-hmm. wheelchair. Yeah, he sort of moved around in a. With a dome. Um, so I made that, and then I kind of had Davros's head up on the back, but you could actually sit in the chair at the same time. So it was such a <laughs> weird. Brilliant. I, I just needed to have more context around that statement. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, dream dinner party guests, you have. Oh, it's really difficult, isn't it? It's really hard. Okay, I just chose people that I fairly. Swiftly, I haven't considered them how they would get on with each other or anything oh, like okay. that. Okay, um, they're just there. They are just there. They're just, it's, it's essentially it's people who have I feel fondness towards because of the influence they've had on my life, or people I'm really just very curious about. I've got too many already. You know, one, how two, many have you got? You're allowed six. I've got seven. All right. Well. Let's see how good they are, and I might let you have an extra one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the first one would be Ian Jury. Blockheads. From the Blockheads, because I reckon he's a laugh. Yeah, almost certainly. He's a bit of a sort of... Um, I have various sort of stepfathers in rock and roll. He's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joe Strum is another one. Hugh Cornwall from The Stranglers. Yeah, I have these sort of... You know, there's a child looking for the father. I've got a few, <laughs> few of them. Anyway. Um, but Ian's made it onto the list. Ian's, yeah, because I reckon, despite allegedly being a bit or difficult, he, I'm sure he'd be good value. Carson McCullers, the American author of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter and The Ballad of the Sad Cafe in that sort of deep south. 
And she, she you know, is just this sort of brooding intellect and she looked kind of quite cool and I don't know, just, just I, I really fell in love with her, her writing as a teenager, so that's a bit of a teenage crush one. Um, similarly, Stevie Smith, who's a, the poet mm-hmm. from Hull, uh, I reckon she'd be a good, good conversationalist. Norman McLaren, who is set up the National Film Board of Canada, um, originally from Scotland, went to Glasgow School of Art, and innovated with directly on film with scratching and bleaching and made cameraless movies. Basically, was a, a huge innovator of, of the camera, cameraless movies and, and animation of a certain kind. Um, but then went on to do choreography and all sorts of other stuff. He sounds amazing. Yeah, I would say he's... Whatever... The, I, there's some aspect of me which is quite similar to him, and it's something to do with um, hands-on manipulation and everything is around rhythm and pace and time-based elements and movement and how those things all interconnect. Okay. Um, I think I would have to invite... Schultz. Okay. <laughs> My mum actually met Schultz briefly. I said he was a lovely, lovely man, but I mean, I just think he's, he's sort of the, that whole world of peanuts and that version of America. How did your mum meet him? She was working um, as a housekeeper on the Isle of Mull, and he was a guest at, the, at this house on the Isle of Mull. That's amazing, though. It's a good. It's a good person to bump into. Yeah, yeah, and she was able to say, "My son is a Snoopy Ragdoll called Spoons." <laughs> <laughs> who isn't? Who isn't Snoopy? But so this Snoopy, but isn't Snoopy? <laughs> but that conversation went well then. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, "Oh, excellent." And then I, I got. So how many did I give you there? Uh, one Ian Jury, Steve Smith, Norman McLaren. Oh, there was another one. I didn't write them down. Carson, Carson McCullers. Carson McCullers. So one, two, three, four, five. You can have your seven. Go on then. Okay. So we've got Schultz there as well. Uh, yeah. Well, I, actually, I may have gone over again. Hang on. So the <laughs> last, last one is about hair, basically. Um, so there's three, three people that would be amazing to have sat opposite you. Susan Sontag, Quentin Crisp and Andy Warhol. Amazing. <laughs> if I'm allowed those, I'm, I could, you know, maybe lose uh, one of the others. Maybe lose um, Ian Jory or something. Oh no! <laughs> I, I think he'd be the life and soul of the party. I think he might be the glue in that lot. Probably would. He'd have sort of Warhol like eyeing him up. Yeah, that sounds like it's. It, yeah, I mean, there's, there'll be some interesting conversations going on. Possibly not so much dancing as some other people's. I don't know. Yeah. Quite, it's quite high, high on the, 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 the Americans there, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with some transatlantic love. No, it's, it's true. <laughs> I think our time's up, unfortunately. Okay. But thank you very, very much. It's been really interesting to find out a bit more about your work and you. Yeah, it was a bit it was rambling, but I, I mean, the thing with the one of the reasons I make films is because it, you can say things that are impossible to articulate, otherwise. So sometimes describing film, my work is gets quite 
strange because it's already sort of happened in the work you know also um, do you not want to just say at some point go and have a look at it well exactly and that, that's definitely the case with, with a, a time-based thing like film is it, it's it's there to it's sort of explain itself and explore itself mm. right well thank you very much yeah I'll thank you. you and um yeah let, let's keep in touch well, thanks very much right, see thanks. you later bye, bye. bye. Thanks again to Matt for our conversation and for his brilliant jingles. Look out for an extra special podcast just before Christmas where the Jelly Team will be inviting a few special friends to their Christmas party. As ever, keep in contact on all the socials and follow at the Jelly Reading and we'll see you very soon.